Our text this morning is found in the book of Psalms, chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Psalm 17, beginning at verse 1. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayers from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us upon the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me... I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. My name is Brian. I am the full-time music director here at GCF. And uh, I often get asked, um, what do you say you do here at GCF? And so I just want to clarify real quick my position, what I do. Uh, What I do is I develop and manage the music ministries for all three of our churches. Uh, I do this by casting vision for the music ministries, um, identify and train leaders to carry out that vision, um, assist those leads with rehearsals, song selections, and updating music equipment, and lastly, I manage the audio and visual teams. But this morning, I get to put on a different hat. This morning, I get to preach. I get to share from God's word from Psalm 17. Now, before I do, please join me in prayer one more time before we get started. Lord, thank you that your Holy Spirit is with us. Thank you that we are not alone. And thank you, Lord God, that your word is alive and active that your word does not return void, and I pray this morning as we hear your word that it would compel us, Lord God, to live godly lives, lives that honor you. I pray this in your name, amen. Richard Jewell was a private security guard working at Atlanta's Centennial Olympic Park on July 27, 1996, when suddenly a bomb exploded. Chaos and panic quickly followed, and Jewel stepped into action 
helping the many bystanders to safety. Jewel was called a hero for stepping in and helping, but that was short-lived. A story was leaked to the papers that Jewel was not a hero, but he was actually the one that planted the bomb. He was ridiculed by the media, and he was followed by the FBI. And it took several weeks of investigation before the FBI would finally acknowledge that Jewel was not a suspect in the bombing. But by that point, Jewel's life changed forever. Jewel's attorney said, it's a war. Why in this bevy of stories does not anyone point, point out the fact that Richard was a hero one day and then a demon the next? They have destroyed this man's life. When interviewed decades later, Jewel confessed that he was still angry about the false accusations and the devastating impact it had on his life. Now, you may not have been publicly ridiculed by the media or followed by the FBI, at least that you're aware of, (laughs) but I would venture to bet that we all have had seasons in our lives similar to Jewel where our lives have been flipped upside down because of a sin committed against us. Whether that was because we were wrongly accused, we were abused or persecuted, we are no strangers to the devastating impact of sin. And when this happens, it's normal for us to respond with anger. It's normal for us to shut down or to lash out at others. It's normal for us to cry out to God and ask God, why? Why, God, are you allowing this to happen? Why, God, are you allowing this to happen to me? And why, God, do you allow bad people to do bad things and seemingly get away with it? Unfortunately, there is no shortage of stories of people being devastated by sinful acts committed against them. And we don't have to leave this building to find those stories. Psalm 17 is a prayer from a man who has been devastated by sinful acts committed against him. The psalmist David is on the run being persecuted and falsely accused, and he has suffered for years because of this. Psalm 17 is David's plea for vindication. And it shows us that those who live godly lives can confidently Pray for vindication. What is vindication? Define some terms. Vindication is an action of clearing someone of blame or suspicion. It's proof that someone is right, reasonable, or justified. Now, before I go any further, I'm curious how many of you are like me in that you find yourself on the struggle bus more often than not when it comes to prayer. Am I the only one? Few? All right. I'm not alone. That's good. It's good to know. Not alone. I think, you know, all of us would say, yeah, I wish I prayed more. I wish that was something I did more often. But my hope this morning is that we will be encouraged by David's prayer in Psalm 17. That this will ignite a spark within us to seek God in prayer for refuge for rescue, and for restoration. So, what then does confident prayer for vindication look like? Well, there are three aspects to it, and these are my three main points this morning. So first, 
we must pray with honesty. And second, we must pray with humility. And third, we must pray with hope. Again, those are we must pray with honesty, we must pray with humility, and we must pray with hope. So my first point, we must pray with honesty. Look with me at verses one through five. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. And with regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. First, we see that honest prayer is bold. Honest prayer is bold. Now, you may be reading this and thinking, David doesn't sound bold. He sounds arrogant. Like, what makes him think that he can say this to God? What makes him think that he can approach God in this way? God knows all. God sees all. So what is David thinking? Well, to understand this, where David's coming from, we need to understand David's situation. Many scholars believe that David wrote Psalm 17 out of his experience in the desert of Maon when he barely escaped the relentless pursuit of King Saul. And I want to share that with you real quick. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 23. It'll be on the screen. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, and Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, and so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul. How many of you have been chased? Been chased? And not by like a friend. I'm not talking like playing tag, like your friend is chasing you. Like you legitimately are trying to get away from somebody who is chasing you. Growing up, my friend's dad, Mark, was a man's man. Mark was strong and athletic. Mark knew everything about football, baseball, and basketball. He coached football and baseball. He was really good at it. He was really competitive and really successful. It wasn't uncommon while hanging out at their house that he would challenge all his teenage boys to some kind of feat of strength, like arm wrestling or you know, uh, bench pressing or push-ups. You could do the most. My favorite was the foot races. Like, randomly, Mark would just be like, you, me, outside now. And like, literally down the street in front of all their neighbors were racing Mark. Like, and you had to do it. Like, he challenged you, you had to do it. Needless to say, Mark was an intense individual. Every year, our church hosted a turkey bowl, usually played by college-age guys because we did not play flag football. We did not play two-hand touch. We played full-contact tackle football because we are foolish. (laughs) And one year, Mark, in his 40s, decides to join us and play. So Mark clearly is the oldest guy on the field when he's there. And at that time, I was young. I was a little more athletic. I was a little faster. 
I uh, usually could get one or two guys to miss a tackle before I was taken out. But on one particular play, my defender slips and falls, and so I'm wide open. And my buddy Jeff throws me the ball, I catch it, I turn around, and I have like 60 yards of open field, and I take off running. But I quickly hear the heavy footsteps, (laughs) the heavy grunting and breathing. I look back and I see Mark. He is like a raging bull chasing a matador. (laughs) And he is gaining on me. And as he gets closer, he starts doing what I literally can only describe to you as a war chant. I'm gonna get you. I'm gonna get you. So at that moment, I was no longer running to score a touchdown. (laughs) No. I was running for my life. And I honestly can say that I have never ran that fast ever before or ever since then. And by God's grace, he allowed me to stay a few steps ahead of Mark. What was supposed to be a friendly and fun game was now the most terrifying experience of my life. For David, there was nothing friendly or fun about his situation. David was not simply being chased, he was being hunted. King Saul's jealousy raged against David, and why? Because David had become more popular than him because of his military success in Saul's army. Saul couldn't handle it. From 1 Samuel chapter 18 to the end of the book, you read how Saul's jealousy drove him mad, falsely accusing David of wanting to take the kingdom from him and his constant endeavor to try and kill David. So what comes across as arrogant statements of sinlessness in verses one through five, in context, is actually David's honest case for righteousness under persecution. One scholar says it this way. Pay attention that believers never allege their own righteousness before God, otherwise they are hypocrites, unless they are in persecution. For in that case, they are certain that they suffer on account of their righteousness, and their adversaries have an unjust case. And this is why David says boldly, from your presence, let my vindication come, in verse 2. At that time, if a legal case was too difficult for the courts, an individual could go to the temple where God manifested his presence, and they could appear before a priest or the judge and receive a divine decision. So David is saying here that he's not afraid to stand in God's presence and plead his case for innocence because His adversaries have an unjust case, and he is being persecuted on the account of his righteousness. This is why he says in verse 4, with regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. By the word of your lips, he's referring to God's word and your paths is referring to God's commandments. In essence, David is saying what the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write in 1 Peter chapter 2. For this is the will of God, 
that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. David's prayer in this psalm is showing us that honest prayer is bold. In addition, it's showing us that honest prayer is intimate. Honest prayer is intimate. Now think about the stress, the anxiety uh, that David is feeling in this situation. Also, I thought about like how tempting it must have been for him, a mighty warrior, a man feared by other nations, to just go confront Saul and take him on. I mean, David did kill a, a giant, by the way. <laughs> and yet he doesn't do that. David, instead, goes to his heavenly father for help. Psalm 17 gives us a glimpse into the relationship David has with God. He trusted God. He believed in God's power to act on his behalf. Simply put, we see David is truly a child calling out to his father for help. When was the last time that you prayed like this? When was the last time you approached God as a child in need of his father's help? Now, I acknowledge that many of us had earthly fathers that dismissed us, who seemed to be more annoyed of us than loved us, who outright abused us. And because of that, we can contribute these things to God and we can wrongly assume that he's annoyed of us, that he doesn't want anything to do with us, that he doesn't want to hear our prayers or be bothered by us. But nothing can be further from the truth. We recited this this morning together, but Hebrews chapter 4 we, we see this, that since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Every week at the end of service, my boys, Nolan and John, confidently run up on stage as if they're part of the worship team. You know, as if they own the church, like nothing's off limits to them. And it doesn't matter who I'm talking to, like what I'm doing, what's going on around us, they boldly approach their dad. And why is that? Well, honestly, I think most of that is because they want to ask to ride home with me before their sisters do. Um, Sarah and I drive separate because I usually get here early for worship team. But I think it's more than that. Uh, my boys are seven and four. And what I love about that age, um, especially with boys, is they're really oblivious to what's going on around them. All that matters to them is that I am their dad and they are my kids. And so they boldly approach, confidently, no matter what the circumstance. In the same way, you can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why? Because God is your father and you are his child. 
Think about it. This is why the veil was torn in two, why we had that a, a visual. That's why we hear about that, right? The veil is torn in two. What is happening? God is taking away what separates us from him. Essentially, God is kicking the door open saying, all my kids, come on in. I love to have my kids around. I want to hear from you. I want to be with you. It's okay. Come in and be with your God. We do not have to fear or approach God as a father who doesn't want us or is going to reject us, but as a father who really does love us and wants us around. David's prayer shows us that we must pray confidently for vindication with honesty. And the second point, we must pray with humility. Look with me at verses six and seven. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Here David echoes what we heard last week from Psalm 16. He said this, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So here we see that humble prayer seeks a refuge in God. Humble prayer seeks a refuge in God. Let me ask you, when you are stressed, when you are tired, when you are in the middle of a hardship, where do you seek refuge? Where is your safe place? Where do you seek refuge when things between you and your spouse are hard? Where do you seek refuge when your kids won't stop misbehaving? Where do you seek refuge when your siblings annoy you? Where do you seek refuge when work is all-consuming? Where do you seek refuge when dealing with financial struggles? Where do you seek refuge when a loved one suddenly dies? Where do you seek refuge when your spouse says to you, I want a divorce, or the doctor says to you, you have cancer? The stress of these situations and many others often expose where we seek refuge. And if we're honest, more often than not, it isn't God. And I'm in that camp. I struggle with that too. Since the fall of man, we've been exchanging our safe place in God for refuge in our intelligence, our strength, our country, our home, our marriage, our kids, food, alcohol, Netflix, Instagram, TikTok, your youthfulness, your successes, our talents, our money. These in and of themselves are not bad, but when they become our refuge, they expose the idol of our hearts. Because what we take refuge in is ultimately what we put our trust in. As I've read through this and I've worked on this sermon this week, I have been really challenged by this. So this morning I want to challenge all of us to seek God for refuge in the small trials so that you are prepared to find shelter in him during the big trials of your life. Let me say this again. Seek God for refuge in the small trials 
so that you are prepared to find shelter in him during the big trials of your life. Humble prayer seeks a refuge in God. In addition, humble prayer seeks a sovereign God. Look with me at verses eight and nine. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. Here David is referencing Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 32, which says this, he, God, found him, Israel, his chosen people, in a desert land and in a howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. And like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him, and no foreign god was with him. David referring to this passage is him recounting the ways God has sovereignly delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. In that account, God miraculously displays his power, setting his people free and leading them to the promised land. Knowing David's context and the situation that he's in, it makes sense that he would quote this because it aptly speaks to what he's going through. He needs God to intervene and act on his behalf in the same miraculous way that he did for his people before him. This also shows us the importance of knowing God's word. Understanding who God is based on his word gives us comfort when our souls are troubled because it shows us that God wants to provide for us. God wants to protect us. God wants to lavish his love on us and be our safe place, our refuge. Speaking of God as our refuge, John Piper said it this way, God is not an employer looking for employees. He is an eagle looking for people who will take refuge under his wings. Ever since the fall of man, we have all suffered from spiritual amnesia. We quickly forget how God has worked in our lives, his goodness, how he has sovereignly protected, provided, and preserved us. All throughout the Bible, we see a call to remember. Remember your God. Remember who he is. Remember what he has done. Remember that through the Holy Spirit, God is with you. That's why we gather on Sunday mornings, is it not? It is to remember that we have a Savior and his saving work on our behalf. Without this reminder, we resort to a works-based gospel, depending on the works of our own hands rather than on the scars on his hands. David's prayer in Psalm 17 is showing us our need for a refuge in God. It is showing us our need for a sovereign God to work on our behalf and our need for the gospel. David's prayer shows us that we must pray with honesty, we must pray with humility, 
And lastly, we must pray with hope. We must pray with hope. Look with me at verses 10 through 14. Speaking of his enemies, they close their hearts to pity, and with their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, and they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. Here David gives a picture of his enemies and their plans against him. We see first that their nature is calloused and arrogant in verse 10. Second, their actions are cruel and destructive, verse 11. And third, their attacks are fierce, verse 12. In all of nature, there are very few animals that can top the fierceness of a lion. In March of 1898, the British started building a railway bridge over the uh, Tazavu River in Kenya. The building site consisted of several camps spreading over an area of eight miles, accommodating the several thousand mostly Indian workers. The project was led by Lieutenant John Henry Patterson, who arrived just days before the disappearances and killings began. During the next nine months of construction, two maneless male lions stalked the campsite, dragging workers from their tents at night and devouring them. Crews tried to scare off the lions by building campfires and thorn fences made of thistling and thorn trees around the camp for protection to keep the man-eaters out, but to no avail. The lions would leap over or crawl through the thorn fences. Patterson noted that early in their killing spree, only one lion would enter at a time and seize a victim, but later they became more brazen, and both would come together, and both would seize a victim. Eventually, other officials arrived with reinforcements to assist in the hunt for the lions. Patterson set traps. He tried several times to ambush the lions at night in a tree, um, but with no success. Eventually, Patterson would kill the first lion on December 9th, 1898. And 20 days later, the second lion was found and killed, shot up to nine times over several days. The first lion killed measured nine feet, eight inches from the nose to the tip of the tail, and it took eight men to carry the carcass back to the camp. And it was estimated that these two lions killed around 135 victims. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the fear, the stress, the anxiety that was felt by these men as they're hearing other men around them being dragged from their tents and devoured, eaten in the middle of the night? The reality is that we too 
have a fierce enemy who is like a lion stalking us. Listen to what 1 Peter chapter 5 says. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Though our enemy is seeking to destroy us, like David, we too can pray with confidence against our enemy. We too can boldly ask God to act on our behalf and we too can pray with hope. Look again with me at verses 13 and 14. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. This section of uh, David's prayer is David's appeal to God for action. It is his plea against his enemies and for his own rescue and restoration. David has pled his case of innocence to God, and now he is saying that his enemies are anything but innocent. He's contrasting the wicked with the righteous, the worldly with the godly, and the main difference he is pointing out is hope. For the wicked and worldly, their only hope lies in this life. This life is their only portion, is all they have. But for the righteous, our hope is far greater. Our hope goes beyond what we can see, what we can feel, what we can smell or touch. Our hope is rooted in the life to come. Our hope is eternal. Look with me at verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. And when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Here David is speaking of heaven. David is talking about seeing God face to face and for the first time being completely satisfied because he is in the presence of his heavenly father, free from the agony of sin. I think too often we uh, elevate biblical characters like David, thinking that they were uber spiritual, near perfect, more in touch with God, but that's not the case. David was a man, sinful and broken. David does not know how God is going to act on his behalf. David does not know if God is going to save him from his enemies or not. David had no idea what the outcome of of his situation would be, so David wisely puts his hope in the promises of God. But what David could only hope for, we can now claim victory in, and that is the cross of Christ. You see, the reality is this. We are not the good guys in the redemptive story of the Bible. No, we are like David's enemies. We were calloused and arrogant, cruel and destructive, fiercely opposed to God, but God. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, there's more. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. True vindication can only be found in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, our Savior, because true vindication took place when Jesus was betrayed by those he loved. True vindication took place when Jesus was beaten, mocked, and wrongly accused. True vindication took place when our Savior carried the cross, the instrument of his death. True vindication took place when nails were driven into his hands and his feet. True vindication took place when the cross was raised and Jesus' broken and marred body was on display. True vindication took place when a spear was thrusted into his side and the blood and water flowed. True vindication took place when Jesus, like a lion, roared, it is finished. True vindication took place three days later when Jesus stepped out of the tomb. True vindication took place when over 500 people bore witness to the resurrected Savior. True vindication took place when he commanded his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. True vindication took place when Jesus ascended into heaven and took his rightful place, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And we look forward to the day when we get to see true vindication come to completion as Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, to administer perfect justice and establish his kingdom where we will be able to dwell with him free from the agony of sin forever. This claim is not a claim that a non-believer can make. For those that have turned their backs on God, that refuse to believe, the wrath of God is upon them. For a non-believer, all you have is this life. If you have been wronged, the only hope you have is to maybe experience some kind of vindication from the wrong that has been done to you. But for those who trust in Christ, True vindication has happened on our behalf in him, and we will get to see true vindication come to fruition when he comes back. For us who have put our trust in Jesus, Psalm 17 shows us that we can confidently pray for and trust in God's perfect vindication. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you that we can claim your righteousness on our behalf. Thank you 
that you have opened the doors wide that we may come boldly to our Father in heaven. And in prayer, we can honestly, humbly, and with hope speak to our Heavenly Father who hears us. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you, God, that it teaches us. And thank you, God, that it counsels us, counsels us through this life. I pray that we will go from here encouraged, Lord, by your word, by the songs that we are singing, and by the fellowship that we get to experience because your Holy Spirit is with us. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.